You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Necker, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. We have a great program lined up today. What, this show or or the other? Joining us from the mighty 8th Air Force Museum in Savannah, Georgia, (laughs) a World War II combat veteran called Bradley, Paul Pollock's B-24 heavy bomber out of Bungate, England during the war, and has authored a book entitled It's Character That Counts. He is 97 years young. Mr. Scott Lair is with us. He is president of the CEO of the Mighty 8th Air Force Museum. Scott is in his 35th year of leading public history organization and has co-authored two books. Also on the line, my friend and member of the Atlanta World War II Roundtable, Colonel Brent Bracewell, a combat Army aviator who flew in Desert Storm, Bosnia, and Iraqi Freedom. Now retired, Colonel uh, Bracewell pilots corporate aircraft. I thought yours truly was difficult to contact, but Colonel Bracewell stays so busy he's almost impossible to track down. And on the line with us from Snellville, Georgia, is Mr. John O'Neill. John is chairman of the board for the Monty 8th Air Force Museum and son of an 8th Air Force veteran. His father was in the first B-17 bomber to bomb Berlin during World War II. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Pete. Okay. Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Paul, we're going to start with you, sir, at 97 years young. Uh, You piloted a B-24 Liberator during the war. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, well, Paul, uh, let me uh, ask you this. I I, uh, was at Falcon Field in Peachtree City one day when one of the few remaining B-24s flew in for the air show. I got to go through the B-24 and also talk to the pilot. I asked the pilot, how does this B-24 handle? He said it's like driving an 18-wheeler with 18 flat tires. Is that correct, Paul? Yeah, (laughs) but uh, I want to tell you, the uh, B-24, the early ones built by Consolidated, California, Arizona, before Willow Run, were uh, hard to fly. They were a little heavy. But uh, mm-hmm. when we got the fighter, when we got the planes out of Willow Run, the uh, we had a great advantage, one great advantage over B-17s, and that was Pratt and Whitney engines. The B-17 has uh, the uh, right cyclones. And while I was waiting to get called up, the white cyclones, I worked on examining the cylinder heads. So when I got to the B-24, I was very pleased that they had Pratt & Whitney because (laughs) I was afraid I might get one of the ones I inspected. (laughs) Uh, Now, the B-24 had a longer... uh, uh range, and also a heavier bomb load than the B-17, didn't it? Yeah, we were, uh, we could carry 8,000 pounds of bombs, and the B-17 could carry six. Also, it took us 125 miles an hour to go up a runway. 
which meant that uh, over in England, B-17s had another advantage because they could choose the short runways. So there were three runways at each airport. There was a 6,000-foot runway, and there were two a 4,500, maybe a 4,200-foot runway. So when we got on the short ones, we had trouble getting off because of weather and so on. And the B-17s only had needed 88 miles an hour to get off a runway. So they could use the short runways effectively. But the wow. other thing is they could fly higher than us. We could had a ceiling of 23,000 feet, and they had a ceiling of close to 30,000. But uh, they... Uh, that was a little better deal than being at 23,000 feet. We couldn't yes, get any sir. higher. But, I've uh, never heard that before. Great explanation. Yeah. And the German uh, pilot. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Go ahead. German pilots. I was going to tell you the German pilots said they'd rather attack B-24s than B-17 because they burn faster, which was true. Really? Why yeah. is that? So, uh, but I'd like to... Why did they burn faster, uh, Paul? Pardon? Why, why did the German pilots say the B-24 burn faster? Because the, they would love to, you know, early in the war, they were making big kills on us by head flying straight into the formations. And Focke uh, Wolf uh-huh. uh, 190, particularly, when they peeled off, they had heavy armament underneath and... Uh, both the B-24, the early ones, had 20-millimeter cannon in the front, and then the, the uh, B-17 is the same way. But when we got the ones out of Willow Run, we could uh, we had tail gun, a nose gunner who was very effective with 15-caliber machine guns, and the uh, Germans uh, would uh, the the uh, B-17 also started putting in uh, the uh, nose, the, took the cannons out and put in the, you know, 15 caliber machine guns, and we started right. to be able to hold our own better. Very good, very good. Let me ask you, uh, tell me about your first mission. You remember your first mission? Yes. I, I was a little tell frightened. Me. But anyhow... <laughs> Uh, tell little, me, tell me a I little. Uh, how, how, Paul? How old were you when you flew your first bombing mission? Okay, we would uh, fly with an experienced co-pilot, and uh, the reason is you didn't know what you're going to be up against, and uh, when you took off from the field, uh, you had a form. Maybe at uh, 23,000, we couldn't go over 23,000 feet. So we'd form mostly around 15 to 20,000 feet. And we'd get into formation. And let me tell you, we had little experience to be getting into formation. But I'd like to, can I just say something? I want to talk about my training and about yes, sir. some of the tough missions, right? Yes, sir. Go ahead. 
Yes, sir. Go, go I, uh, here's, here's what Roosevelt said about my generation. He said there is a, there is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. To other generations, much is expected. To this generation has a rendezvous with destiny. And uh, I think it described what we were walking into greater than ever. And my friends and I enlisted early in uh, about 1942, right after uh, Pearl Harbor. And uh, we, six of us, met this very wealthy man's house. And we were talking about which branch of the service should we go in. I always wanted to be a pilot because of my brother, who was six years older than I. He and I were up on... Uh, on uh, December 7th, 1941, he said, come on, kid, I'm going to teach you how to fly. I was 18, <laughs> and he was, uh, and we went up in a Piper Cub to get started. And we landed and found out that the Japs, oh, excuse me, the Japanese <laughs> were, uh, had already bombed Pearl Harbor. Wow. And my brother, 90 days later, became an instructor with 60 hours of time in a Piper Cub for the Navy pilots at Memphis Air Station. Really? That's how tough it was for us to get started. Wow. I want to tell about uh, how uh, we found out that we were going to be in the service. When we were at the, okay. my friend's house... Six of us grew up together, played ball together, graduated from high school in 1941. Some of us 40, some of them were 42. I was 41. And uh, we're in this house, very wealthy guy up in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And uh, this uh, Mr. Dolan ran it. He was a very successful businessman. And he said to us, I, he walked through the room, and I said, hey, Mr. Dolan, you think we ought to enlist? He said, I can't give you that advice. You've got to decide for yourself. But he said, let me show you something. He went upstairs, came down, and here he was with pictures of Eddie Rickenbacker and Tui Spatz in World War One, the Lafayette Escadrille. He was a pilot in World oh, wow. War One. And he said to me, he said to me, you guys are going to have to decide for yourself. So the next Sunday, believe it or not, he was 55 years old. He, uh, his two stepsons said, what do you see the old man? And he walked in this big room and he said, I'm leaving Tuesday. You guys can make up your own minds. <laughs> and he became one of the top intelligence officers in the 8th Air Force and flew nine missions on his way to 60 and uh, so he could find out what the young guys were getting, how they were getting wow. handled on these tough missions. Okay? So yes, sir. The reason I, 
I also want to mention that I wanted to get into the Army Air Corps because I could remember the older brothers who had been flying uh, the, uh, you know, some of them had been in the uh, the fighter, what was the one that before the, our regular fighters? The, the one that was in the... Uh, the, the Eagle Squadron? Eagles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The ones that were in the Eagle Squadron. So that's all I wanted to do was get those wings. And uh, I went to training, and the reason I brought this up... Yeah. Got about two minutes. Keep going. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Can I go with that? No, no, keep going. Oh, okay. Uh, the reason I uh, talked about it in training was that when I was in flying bolty vibrators in basic, I uh, had a tough instructor. He could never be an officer because he got caught flying under bridges in the <laughs> Mississippi River, but he called me bubble brains. But, man, he said one day, you better learn how to fly formation bubble brains because if you get into England, you're going to have to go to 20,000 feet before you break out of the weather. He was right. Uh. Okay. In the end, I already saved my life. Let me give you a couple of missions. Okay, hang on there, Bubble Brain. We we have to go to our (laughs) we have to go to our first uh, commercial break. Uh, We'll be back in just a couple minutes, and we're going to continue with Paul's story when we come back. Stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B, host of the Locked and Loaded Show. On America's Web Radio, join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. McAllister's Auto Transport is a privately held company celebrating our 75th anniversary this November, specializing in enclosed-only transportation to the OEM, personal snowbird market, and our favorite market of all is the collector market. Give us a call at 800 748-3160, or you can reach us on the web at McCollisters.com, and that's M-C-C-O-L-L-I-S-T-E-R-S.com. Large enough to handle all of your transportation needs, small enough to provide you the old town, old school service that you come to expect when you're, you're moving. Listening you're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we are back with Paul Grassy, 97-year-old veteran, World War II veteran, flew B-24s out of England. Paul, continue, continue your fabulous story, sir. Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to take you when, when I went overseas. We went okay. through uh, training, replacement training in Charleston, South Carolina. So we got orders for our, my crew and for uh, 15 other planes to go to uh, Mitchell Field in Long Island. And they brought in 
the great B-24, the B-24Ms were a terrific airplane to fly. They were fast. They were smooth. And uh, we, uh, we left there and went for, uh, to Labrador, Goose Bay. And our instructions were to fly to uh, Greenland and refuel in the, in the night. And we're there three days. 45,000 feet of snow. It was 45 <laughs> below zero. And we were being sent to uh, England. Lindbergh had a better shot at making us get to England than we did. I only had 300 hours flying time. Oh, my goodness. And uh, anyhow, we get called back to get rebriefed. They pictured a... Uh, a rock formation at Greenland, and you had to make a left turn. If you went straight, it was dead end, and uh, we made the turn. We were shown the turn. We get called into the briefing room, and they said, we're going to send you all the way to England tonight, to Valley Wales, and you, we, because we got a 100-mile-an-hour tailwind. We think you can make it. <laughs> 16 planes and uh, that's the way it was however I got to the point of no return and my flight engineer who just passed away he had uh, you know disease okay. but uh, he uh, came up and he said hey Paul we got a problem I said what he said I can't transfer the fuel from the main tank, from the wing tanks to the main tanks. So oh, wow. We, I was short an hour, right? And uh, I said to him, I said, Jack, why can't we? He said, I don't know how. That's how we were. I mean, we were <laughs> rookies. We didn't even get to combat yet, let alone uh, this. So uh, he said, what do we do? I said, let's get on the air. So... We hear a voice, I call it the night God whispered at me. And uh, the voice said, there's a booster pump behind the cabin door into the bomb bay. It should be on the on position. We had the same problem. He comes back 20 minutes later, he says, we're transferring fuel. Wow. I oh, said, wow. And, and uh, we had our crew with us. We get to Valley Wales. And landed, our hydraulic system was on the number three engine, and it wasn't powerful. So the landing was quite rapid. And uh, the other thing was, we only had 15 minutes of gasoline left. But then, <laughs> then the next day, we left for, uh, I went to the 446 bomb group in the 2nd Air Division, and we were 18 miles south of Norwich in Bungie, England. And uh, it just happened that the airplane that I flew over was uh, sent to the same airport. Got called up. The commander said, uh, here you are. He said, uh, how would you like to have the plane you flew over? I said, God, I'd love it. You know, <laughs> and uh, we had it for the rest of the war. Wow. I flew 13 combat missions, and this plane 
was a plane I flew every time. And uh, I want to just tell two missions, all right? It yes, was sir. April 4th and April 5th, 1945. April 5th, they took 23 B-24s from the main formation and sent us over to uh, fly to a ME-262 landing fields near their manufacturing plants. On the way over, we didn't have any fighter cover. We got hit by uh, uh, 12 to 15 ME-262s, and among them were one Fox 190. These guys weren't as good as they as some of their <laughs> guys early in the war, but we uh, shot down six of them, and uh, we also uh, lost three B-24s, and we, you know, it just happened. You can't explain it. The next day, we get briefed, my buddy and I, we get briefed to fly to Paris to form because of terrible rainstorms, thunder, and lightning. And, uh, you know, when you took off, you had to see the at the end of the runway, when a guy left the runway, we took every 30 seconds we were taken off. And that would be maybe 40 airplanes, usually. And uh, anyhow, this particular day, we were forming near Paris because of the weather. And it was bad. So how would you like to fly through soup for two and a half hours, and there's a hole in the sky, and there's 150 B-24 circling, ready to go to Germany. And uh, it was unbelievable. I mean, and it, I, the reason I mentioned this, it was brutal. And uh, we wound up over the Bay of Antwerp, and I didn't know how I got there. My uh, navigator wasn't that good. He was uh, a guy from Staten Island, and they didn't get much time uh, finding out how to move around in another country, you know. But uh, anyhow, uh, when we uh, got finished, my buddy never came back. And right now, I've completed a whole write-up and it's beautifully done. We got it in the Defense Department to get him the Medal of Honor. Oh, With wow. that, I say thanks a lot. There were a lot of hap there were a lot of unhappy times, but the greatest generation was able to make much happier times because we had great attitudes. We loved our country, and that's the way we fought the war and won. Yes, sir. And let me ask you this, Paul. Some of the listeners may not know what the ME-262 was. That was Germany's uh, uh, jet fighter in late in the war. Did That's you right. Yeah, that was the first. Yeah. Yes. That the ME, uh, yeah. The P-51 won the war for us. The uh, P-51 was so great that uh, during... Right after the second raid on Schweinfurt, we uh, got the P-51 as escorts. And uh, the P-51 came, and uh, between 
the end of 43 and the invasion in 44, we killed 12,000 German pilots with the P-51. Holy cow. Wow, I, I didn't know that. Did, did you guys uh, uh, shoot down the ME-262s? No, we were... Uh, with, with well, that US. particular mission, did you guys shoot down the ME-262s that were attacking you? Yes, we did get credit for one, but it's tough to get credit out of a bomber because you have to see the plane go through the clouds and hit the ground, however it was. So it was very difficult when we got debriefed to prove that you shot it down. Fighter pilots, that was their job. I felt that the fighter pilots were great pilots. We had 261 that were uh, uh, aces in World War II over Germany, okay? And uh, we had... I just admire those guys. We had 5,000 pilots, fighter pilots, never got credit for a victory. So uh, we had some great pilots. I bet you did. Now, let me ask you this about the jet fighter, the 262. I interviewed a nose gunner uh, from a B-24, and he said it was almost impossible to get a bead on those jet fighters because they, they went so fast. Is that true? They flew at 500 miles an hour, yeah. They were 500 miles an hour. However, their problem was they had junior commandos flying them late, late in the war. These guys just weren't as good as the original German pilots that were battling in the Battle of Britain and, uh, and those early days. You know, we were getting stopped at the, uh, German border. We, we couldn't go farther with a fighter or the ones we had, the P-47s and the P-38 wasn't as good as it was supposed to be. It yeah. was great in the South Pacific. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, I mean, I don't know whether you know, everybody agrees with that, but that's what I understand. <laughs> yes, sir. The P-38 was a good play and so was the Thunderbolt, but uh, they didn't have the range of the P-51. And, no. uh, See, that was the problem with all the fighters, other than yeah. the P-51. They all could only stay up the Brits, Hurricane, the, uh, you know, the, the great one. Spitfire. Well, yes, yeah, Spitfire. Spitfire. And uh, the uh, ME, the of 190s and the ME-109s, they can only stay up for an hour and a half. That was the problem with the P-38 and the P-47. Wow. The P-51 wow. could stay up eight hours. Yeah, I know that uh, Herman Goring, the Luftwaffe commander, said that when he saw the P-51s over Berlin, he realized they had lost the war. Oh, and I, think, I, I, I don't think I... That's right. <laughs> the, uh, I... Uh, you see, when you were bigger, you didn't get to fly fighters because you didn't fit. That's right. And that, yeah, you know. So, but I got to be a good formation flyer, and uh, <laughs> but that wasn't trying to do an Immelman or an Immelman. I can't say it either. And, uh, <laughs> That's okay. The, uh, you know what I you mean? No problem. Loops, 
What? Yeah, Paul, Paul I, I, I was surprised when I started interviewing pilots from World War II, and you were absolutely correct, sir. The shorter pilots were the fighter pilots, and the taller guys flew the bombers. And it was because right. of the limited space in the fighters. Very unusual. All right, guys, we're having to go to our second break. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Please stand by. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back with Paul Grassy, uh, World War II combat bomber pilot. Uh, Paul, you mentioned that you were uh, destined for B-29 training. Is that correct? Yes. We, uh, yes, we, uh, I was on orders. I had to be in London the night the Germans surrendered. Oh. What a time that was. Sorry you missed it. (laughs) <laughs> but uh we weren't we weren't as excited as the Brits were. We had done our job, but we were on our orders to go to uh B twenty nine training and then we were gonna lead the eighth was gonna lead the uh the uh invasion of the mainland and Japs, right? That's when Harry Truman had guts enough to drop Two atomic bombs, what a courageous move that was. And uh, the war ended. And uh, that was the other great party I've been to, but that was Sioux Falls, South Dakota. <laughs> did, uh, did you fly the B-29? Never did. I'm kind of glad I did it. Maybe I wouldn't be here in 97. <laughs> I, I tell you what, sir, had you participated in the invasion of Japan, it's doubtful we would be talking to you today. That was going to be a horrific uh, battle. Absolutely. All right, Paul, we're going to come back uh, with you uh, in just a little bit because I have a couple questions for you. But uh, uh, let's get uh, Scott in here. Scott, I want you to tell the folks a little bit about the Mighty 8th Air Force Museum in Savannah, Georgia, like the founding and the mission fulfillment and so forth. Go ahead. All right. Well, well thank you, and good morning, Pete. And uh, uh, I appreciate being given the difficult mission of following my friend and one of my heroes, <laughs> Paul Grassi. But, but here I go. To help. Uh, 
The, the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force opened uh, in May of '96, so we've uh, we've we've been at it now for for a little more than than 24 years. And uh, during that time, we have uh, we've welcomed um, more than uh, 2.1 million visitors to to wow. the museum. So we are indeed a, a a very popular educational resource, not only in in the greater Savannah area, but uh, all across across the country. Uh, the mission, to paraphrase the mission statement, uh, the museum preserves and presents the history of, of America's most storied Air Force, the, the mighty eight. And, and, the, and the eight in World War II, it, it truly is a remarkable story. Uh, when you think about it, um, the eight was activated in Savannah, uh, not far from where the museum is located. In, in January of, of 1942, with with seven men and, and no aircraft, here you have an air force with no aircraft initially, and it would grow in a very short period of time, Pete, to become the world's largest air armada, 350,000 yeah. strong. Uh, and the eighth, I, when I think of the eighth in World War II, I I see it as uh, very much a, a David and Goliath story. Uh, these are inexperienced teenagers and, and young men, the majority of whom had never been in an airplane, and they were given the, the twofold mission of, of one, destroying the German Luftwaffe, the world's most experienced, the most advanced air force at the time, and two, uh, crippling the, the German war-making machine. Um, history tells us that, of course, the eight ultimately prevailed, but it, it took it. It required 33 months uh, uh, to do so. So that makes it that's the longest battle in the European theater of operations. Uh, and and in the course of those 33 months, the eight lost 26,000 young men, another 28,000 became POWs, and yet another uh, 18,000 casualties. So right. uh, remarkable, remarkable story, remarkable sacrifice. Uh, and the eighth uh, victory cleared the way for D-Day. Uh, it would have been a very different outcome had the eighth not, not won, won the air war. So that, the history of the eighth is... Is a story that that all of us should know, uh, and here at the museum, we we take that history and put it in the context of timeless themes such as courage, duty, commitment, sacrifice. Those those are the themes that that we want uh, our visitors to uh, uh, to encounter, to engage with, and leave with. Uh, here, here at the Mighty Eighth Museum, and and in terms of, of fulfilling that mission, Pete, uh, we do that in really four four uh, four ways. First is collecting. Again, we are, we are a history museum, so we are we are collecting historical items and, and objects uh, all the time. Uh, this museum curates the the most significant, the most comprehensive collection of materials. Uh, associated with uh, World, World War II 8th Air Force history. For example, the museum has 
over 1,100 oral histories uh, with with Paul and and some of his compatriots. Uh, more than 12,000 objects such as diaries, uniforms, letters, other personal effects. More than 90,000 historical photographs, film footage, uh, aviation art, and of course we. Um, we also have a 10,000-volume library here at the uh, uh, Roger Freeman Research Center. So it is, it is, it is by far the world's most comprehensive uh, and most significant collection of Eighth Air Force material, and it's used by by researchers, genealogists, family members uh, all, all the time. Um, in addition to collecting. Uh, World War II, 8th history. Uh, the museum has a really robust education uh, program here, a full range of programs for adults and, and children. Uh, last year, uh, more than 17,000 school children from 350 schools participated in history and STEM education programs here at the museum. That's, that is, that's outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah, we're, very, we're very proud of that. Uh, um, we, ha we have fun with history as well. We have a program uh, called Bunking In, uh, where, uh, where young people spend the night here at the museum. Uh, they learn a little history, but they're having a lot of fun, so, so education doesn't, isn't so painful for them. Um, lots of, that's very popular with scouting groups. There are a number of badges that girl and Boy Scout groups can earn by participating in the Bunking In program. And um, with this um, coronavirus, we're not seeing the school groups that we uh, that we normally do, and we're certainly disappointed by that. But we also we have a very very nice uh, outreach program. It's called the Flying Foot Locker, so we can bring the museum <laughs> to, to your classroom. Uh, and the Flying Foot Locker program has proved to be very beneficial in, in uh, getting the museum into, into classrooms as we, uh, we wait for the day when the, when the students return here to, to the museum. Uh, you come to the museum, again, here's another aspect of mission fulfillment. We have great, great exhibitions here at, at the museum. There are permanent and changing exhibitions. Uh, we begin with the gallery entitled Prelude to War, where you get a, you get a context for what World War II was, was all about, uh, and really sets the stage for America's entry in, into World War II. Uh, the Combat Gallery is, is our largest gallery, uh, and it, it has as its centerpiece a meticulous re restored um, B-17, the, the city of Savannah. It, it oh, is a beautiful historic aircraft uh, that that came here as uh, to the museum over 10 years ago uh, as a wreck. Quite frankly, I mean it was a mess. Um, it had uh, been ignored in storage uh, with another museum for uh, decades. Uh, they came to the museum, was gifted to the museum. And a, a team of volunteers, a corps of volunteers, has, has contributed more than 50,000 hours to the restoration of, of this historic airbird. Oh, and it is goodness. Just, it's, just a, it's just a beautiful, beautiful object. And 
allows us to tell so many, so many rich stories about the aid and uh, aerial combat uh, and the role of the flying fortress uh, in winning the skies over Europe. Uh, we also, uh, I mentioned that there were 28,000 POWs. Um, now there were, there were some uh, airmen who were shot down who escaped and evaded over 2,000. Uh, or were were uh, um, saved by uh, Belgian underground, the French underground, the Maquis, uh, and others as well. Um, and so we have a very fine exhibit on the whole uh, subject of escape and evasion. Another one, wow. another exhibit, EOW experience, the Hall of Valor. Uh, the ape had 17 Medal of Honor winners. Over 7,000 Purple Hearts were awarded to uh, members of the 8th Air Force, so a, a highly, highly decorated uh, Air Force, uh, to say the least. Uh, and then again, we have a, a rotating exhibitions program, and the current rotating exhibition is entitled Work, Fight, Give, America's Relief Agencies in World War II, and that, that exhibition looks at the many, many organizations in this country that provided relief to war-torn uh, peoples and uh, countries across the globe. Then lastly, I go back to the collection. Um, we, we, we conduct research, uh, we publish um, using uh, the collection, and we have, we're very proud of this fact as well, over 6,000 people use the library each year in the collections of this museum wow. to conduct research. So. Um, last year alone, to give you a, a sense of, of the scope of public service here, uh, over 125,000 people um, received some direct service from, from this museum in, in 2019. Uh, we do all of this here at the museum without receiving any public funds for the operation of the museum. We... Uh, we uh, earn our, our support each year through uh, admission fees, uh, retail sales in the gift shop, uh, renting the facility, uh, gifts, grants, uh, some investment income from the museum endowment, and, and fundraising events. So, uh, Pete, you, we mentioned before we came on the air uh, that you, you confessed that you've not been to the museum but that you're close by. So uh, we're going to get you to this very, very powerful place just, just as soon as possible. Uh, the museum reopened Memorial Day of this year. We are, we are open. Uh, we, once again, are, are, are serving uh, our visitors and others to the best of our abilities in this uh, coronavirus pan pandemic. We're open uh, Tuesday through Saturday, 10 to 5, Sunday, 12 to 5, and of course, you can uh, you can find us on on the on the web as well at, at mighty8.org. Well, Scott, I will admit I'm embarrassed that I haven't been down there, but I will be seeing you very soon. I think this is a great great thing you guys are doing. Uh, we do have to go to our final break. We'll be back just shortly, and I'll be talking to uh, John and Brent after that. Gentlemen, stand by, please. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. 
just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm going to uh, talk to John O'Neill now. You're chairman of the board down there, John, at the 8th Air Force Museum. Uh, if you want to have a few comments about the museum, that's fine. But I also want you to tell us about your father who served with the 8th Air Force, and he was in the first B-17 to bomb Berlin. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh, and thank you, Pete. And, uh, yeah, it's my, my pleasure to... Serve, uh, serve the board as the current chairman. Um, my dad was in the 8th Air Force, and uh, on March 4th, uh, uh, he woke up that morning not thinking he'd ever be in the first B-17 to reach the German capital, Berlin. But uh, later that day, he in fact did through a series of what I would call um, mission errors, mission fulfillment, and uh, things that went wrong, and his B-17 ended up being in the lead. And, and the first one over the target. So, um, wow. Yeah, dad went in, uh, dad went into, uh, the service in, uh, July of 41 for his, his one year of service back then. And, uh, with Pearl Harbor ended up, uh, uh, heading over to Europe in January of 43 as a medic with the fourth fighter group. He was trained to, uh, to be a medic and he saw a sign that said, uh, you know, flight pay $9 a month. He thought his mother could use that money <laughs> and, and how hard, how hard could it be? So he signed up. Next thing, he was going to gunnery school at an RAF base in Scotland, and then uh, he got assigned to a to a, a replacement uh, crew, and ended up uh, with a 95th Bomb Group crew uh, out of Forum uh, under the command of Lieutenant Bill Owen. Um, Dad was a tail gunner and waist gunner, and uh, they then got transferred to a base uh, called Alkenberry in August and uh, trained in Pathfinder aircraft, um, radar equipped aircraft, which was top secret. Uh, bomb through overcast. Uh, as Paul said, uh, Paul Grassi said earlier, the weather was often bad over in Europe, and that is the one thing that stopped the eight uh, from proceeding to targets. A lot of recalls, a lot of uh, bomb secondary targets based on how bad the weather over Western Europe got. So this uh, new radar um, equipment helped the uh, helped the Air Force, the 8th Air Force, get to its target. But yeah, Dad, uh, uh, on that March 4th mission, um, that Pathfinder aircraft was um, uh, assigned to the 95th Bomb Group and the 13th Combat Wing, and uh, they were headed to uh, Berlin, a uh, maximum effort target, and uh, 
there was a, a radio recall, and uh, they had a good position in the formation. They were in the middle of the bomber stream, which uh, my father said was good because uh, the fighters usually hit the lead squadrons up front, dropped down, <laughs> refueled, and came back up and hit the tail squadron. So they thought they had a pretty good position. But radio recall came, and all the planes were uh, a lot of the planes were headed back. There were 750 bombers dispatched that day to Berlin, Ooh. and. Uh, Radio chatter started going, hey, uh, everybody's turning around. What's going on? Well, the, the colonel in command of uh, the, the wing, um, his radio operator determined the call was a fake German call. So instead of, uh, you know, going with the recall, they proceeded on to the target. So 31 <laughs> B-17 out of 750 with uh, 2,000 uh, Luftwaffe fighters en route. Um, we're headed to Berlin, and if it wasn't for the bad weather, and as Paul said, the P-51s did not get the radio recall. They were waiting from over Berlin. They they actually saved them, saved that group of B-17s. Four were lost, uh, 27 returned, and uh, they they were credited with being the very first B-17 to bomb Berlin. There was a lot of hubbub about it. Um, uh, Lieutenant Owen and the crew said that was our 15 minutes of fame. They got their pictures in the paper, and it was a big deal back in the States that the Nazi capital had finally been reached by the 8th Air Force. Uh, the following two days later, on March 6th, that was the maximum effort where, um, you know, 69 uh, bombers were shot down uh, by the Luftwaffe. So 700 kids uh, ended up either in POW camps or killed in action. So, yeah, that that's his uh, uh, short story, the Berlin mission. But um well, I'll tell you what, uh, John, that, that's also called the cost of freedom. Uh, yes, sir. Th- thank God for, for men like your, like Paul and his father. Uh, you know, those, those gunners in the B-17, those cabins were not pressurized and they were firing and fighting in like 30, minus third degree weather. Did your father ever mention that? Oh, 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 yeah, Pete. Um, in fact, when my dad passed in 06, um, I noticed that he had red lines on his face. And I said to my mother, Mom, what are those red lines on dad's face? He says, John, that's where he had frostbite between his goggles and his oxygen mask. And, and I never knew he had, uh, had incurred frostbite, uh, being in the, you know, in the open air in the, uh, on the 17. But yeah, frostbite, they, they, there was a three F's. My father called them the three F's. They, they constantly fought. Um, Fear, fighters, um, slack, and the final F was freezing. I'm, I'm sorry, four Fs. So, yeah. you know, there was this constant battle with internal fear. Um, the flak, which my father hated, said fighters you felt like you could shoot back at. So you felt like you could defend yourself. And then the, uh, and, uh, and then the freeze, the, the 50 below zero, the wind blowing in through the open windows on the 17. Um, my dad's ball turret gunner, George, he suffered severe frostbite on his toes and his fingers when his heated suit went out during combat. Uh, but he maintained his gun position. He couldn't feel his feet or his fingers, but he kept shooting, he said. Wow. Uh, it just, uh, especially the children now, they just don't understand what the greatest generation had to go through to preserve their freedom and the freedom of protest or whatever these kids want to do. Uh, we need more history, and thank you guys down there at the 8th Air Force Museum for what you're doing. Uh, let me jump. Hey, Brent, you and I are going to have to interview separately one day. You have an outstanding military record, but uh, if you will, Brent, talk a little bit about your involvement with the 8th Air Force uh, Museum. I know you're, you're just 
knee deep in that in that facility. Go ahead and tell me something about it. I am Pete, and it's an honor to be involved with this museum. Uh, people ask me, I didn't have any relative that fought in the Eighth Air Force, uh, but this is something that I've been enamored with since I was a kid. I remember as a child, probably sixth grade, reading about B-17s, B-24s. Didn't even know what the Eighth Air Force was, but I was enamored with someone that would get into an airplane. I mean, flying's a bit dangerous anyways. And then they would take an aircraft and fly it into combat. And, you know, when the Eighth Air Force was flying, these guys only had a one in three chance of even surviving. You know, between that time in August of 42 to really May of 43, no plane had even completed 25 missions. And they didn't have fighter escort. They said they had fighter escort, but it was all German. And I would yeah. read about these guys <laughs> and what they went up against. And I, it just amazed me. And I guess, you know, as a child, you yearn for, you know, heroism and heroics. And I couldn't think of anyone that could be more heroic than these gentlemen that day after day would get into an aircraft knowing that they have a one in three chance of either being shot down and captured, killed, or maimed to the point that they would return home maimed. Uh, yeah. Later on in life, uh I, you know, I was in the Army for 26 years. I was working for an, a joint assignment, working for an Air Force officer. I walked into his office. I saw this 8th Air Force stuff on the wall. I said, you know, I like these guys. I followed them. He said, Brent, you know, there's a local chapter here in Atlanta called the Georgia Chapter of the Mighty 8th Air Force Historical Society. Went, never thought in my life I could actually meet my heroes, those guys that I'm, you know, that I'd read about. And now I was meeting, you know, B-24 pilots, B-17 pilots, crewmen, p fifty one. They got me involved with the museum, and I tell you, uh, it's a it, I, it's a museum of history, but I tell you, it's a museum of suffering. It's a museum of uh, suffering that builds perseverance. Perseverance builds character. Character builds hope. And uh, what I see in this museum is that it, it connects with anyone that's going through a hard time, because if these guys can go and do what they did and persevere, because they knew there was a higher call that they were called to, you know, we all can, especially even in today's time. I understand that, Brent. And, and let me tell you, you know, the uh, plane they used for the movie Memphis Bell uh, in that B-17 several times. And it, it, it was always fascinating me because I flew on the B-52s. And comparing the B-52 to the B-17, that's like a, a beat-up Volkswagen compared to a Ferrari. But uh, uh, it was so slow. And vulnerable. Uh, but I remember Hello. we had a, a group of journalists mm-hmm. uh, in the B-17. We were buckling up, and they started. They were going to start the engines, which they did. And I was uh, sitting next to a female journalist, uh-huh. and they started one of the uh-huh. engines. And it was coughing and spitting, uh-huh. and finally got going. Yeah, and time? she said, my God, those engines are, are loud. I said, uh, uh, young lady, that's only one. We got three more to go. She almost <laughs> fell out of a chair. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, it's a very graceful aircraft. Okay. Uh, never have flown in the B-24, but I sure would like to. Uh, Paul, did you fly any more after World War II? No. Hello. Uh, <laughs> I, at the end of the war, we, uh, you know, I was in Sioux Falls, as I said, it was terrific. I mean, the party. <laughs> and we were we were shocking oats. I was shocking oats with colonels. I, you know, second lieutenant doesn't have a lot of rank, but I had a I had a 
great experience. And uh, I never, but I want to tell you about the last time that I flew a B-24. Yes, sir. I was out in Harlingen, Texas, and uh, we got $75 a month for flight pay combat. And it had been two months since I had been paid. So I was going to get discharged. They wanted to get rid of us because now we were expensive, you know. <laughs> so uh, I uh, went down to the flight line, and we were in, they had old B-24s there. And I had come down from Sioux Falls, and um, they sent me up in the morning for four hours. I had to get eight hours to get two months' pay, 150 bucks. That was like $84 million, right? But uh, anyhow, uh, I get down for the afternoon flight, and the dispatcher called me over, and he said, Hey, uh, I have... Uh, Two guys here who want to go up this afternoon and get their flight time, and uh, they said they were first pilots. And he said, uh, "Would you mind going up?" They said they hadn't flown in a while. He didn't tell me they never had flown for a while. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, I get there and we started the engines, and I said the, the guy couldn't start them. Well, I knew he hadn't gone through. Uh, you know, training, because uh, these were uh, oil, not, you know, we had later on in the B-24, we had, uh, you know, electric, uh, the uh, superchargers. Oh, got so we get out of takeoff, and I see the guys got it. There was only a flight engineer with me whom I knew from England, and... Uh, oh, we got to wrap it. These two guys, one guy gets in the seat, and uh, I said, hey, go. And he started down a runway, but he had his feet on the brakes. And uh, <laughs> this is the last time I ever flew. So I yelled to the engineer. Okay, Paul, we got to wrap Get him uh, off Pete, the Pete, control. we got to wrap it up. So he hit the seat, seat flew back. And I get up and I'm going through the leaves as I go through the, you know, we get to the end of the runway. And uh, Pete, we so have I to got wrap to fly solo it's for over. four hours. Because <laughs> I was swearing at these guys. So, but uh, Consolidate down to about one minute. Tell me about your toughest mission. Uh, that's the yeah, uh, state Berlin. We're at. That's Berlin. Berlin. Okay, we are out of we are out of time, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Great interview, Paul. You did an outstanding job. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.